Hi, I'm Joaquin Evans, co-senior leader of Bethel Austin. I pray that Jesus ministers to you through today's message and that you are blessed deeply. If you're encouraged, please like and subscribe so you can stay up to date with all of our weekly sermons. Enjoy the message. Okay, we're going to start. We're going to put up a declaration on the screens in just a moment. We're going to read this together. I love starting um, my messages this way. And, you know, when I'm reading the Bible, I do this little thing where I take just a minute before I open the Word and I pray. And I'm like, God, I'm ready to encounter you. God, meet me in these pages. And who knows that I'm not saying that prayer because I'm reminding God to encounter me. I'm saying that to remind myself that there is an encounter available. Amen. And that's why I love doing this because sometimes we can come to church and we can just kind of go through the routine. But I think sometimes when we actually open our mouths, when we make declarations, there is power in that. And we come into alignment. We set intention on opening and learning from the Word of God. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're going to read this together. Are you ready? I love my Bible. I believe that it is the Word of God. I believe I am who He says I am. I believe in its power to transform my life. I know that God will meet me in these pages. My heart is open to receive and I boldly declare I will never be the same. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, so the last couple of times that I've spoken, I've been going through the Beatitudes. And so we started with meekness and we, we spoke about Matthew 5, 5, which is blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. And then a couple of weeks after that, I spoke on Matthew 5, 6, which is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. And so we're going through these Beatitudes and we're opening them up and we're looking at what God has to say in them. And I'm so excited. I love the Beatitudes. Can, we, can I just get a raise of hands real quick of who has been at any of the last two um, sermons on the Beatitudes? Okay, great. Just helps me to know how much context to give to prep. Okay, so we all know from previously that the Beatitudes are the B-attitudes of the believer the attitudes in which a believer should embody. And I love this because I love that Jesus was a teacher, but He was also a preacher. Amen? And I love preachers. I love listening to preachers. I love listening to teachers. I love listening to the way that they teach. And who knows, if you've been around here long enough, we have a few different people. We have amazing people who get up on this stage and preach. And I'm so thankful for each of them. But every single one of them has their own style. Every single one of them has their own way of delivering a message, right? And it should be unique to the person. And that's why I love listening to other people because you get to experience God through the uniqueness of the individual. And so Jesus had His way and His style of teaching too. And you know, oftentimes we put what we want to be the takeaway, our big point at the beginning of the message. And why do we do that? Because sometimes we just kind of, doze off towards the end. We wanna preface it at the beginning. This is what we want you to get out of this message. And Jesus does the same thing. The Beatitudes are the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And He's saying, hey, this is the framework right here for the Christian life. 
these Beatitudes that I'm gonna list out, this is the framework. These are the characteristics of Jesus, of me, of my Father that I want you to get and that I want you to live. And you will be blessed when you do. And then He goes further in the Sermon of Mount of picking apart the nuances of these Beatitudes and teaching us about them. And so I love this portion of Scripture. And so today we are gonna be speaking on Matthew 5. We're gonna be, well, I'm gonna be speaking. I mean, feel free to jump in though. Like I like, I like the interaction. <laughs> well, I'm gonna be speaking on Matthew 5, 7, which are blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. If the merciful obtain mercy, then perhaps it could be said that those who don't have mercy will not receive mercy. So it's a pretty big deal that we as believers grasp this concept of mercy and learn how to be merciful so that we in turn can obtain mercy. Amen? See, it's not, mercy isn't this Christian buzzword. We sometimes throw it up on posters, like without really knowing the true meaning and the true context of this word. But mercy is the very core of our faith. Amen. We have all received mercy. If you're sitting in this room, if you believe in Jesus, if you follow Him, you are a receiver of mercy. So it is a requirement, not a suggestion, a requirement that you then allow mercy to flow through you and be extended to those around you. Another way that Christ is glorified in us and that we become more like our heavenly Father is that we extend mercy and we show the world what it looks like to serve a God who abounds in mercy. Our God is a God of mercy and we want to represent Him to the world as a good and merciful God, don't we? There are so many scriptures throughout the Bible that speak of the mercy of God. Over 144 of them. There's a lot of them. I wanna read one of my favourite scriptures um, about mercy. And then I wanna get into what is mercy? What are some of the things that stop mercy from flowing through our lives? And how do we stay merciful? Amen. So Psalms 145, eight through nine in the New Living Translation says, the Lord is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. The Lord is good to everyone. Turn to your neighbour and say, the Lord is good to me. He showers compassion on all His creation. The New King James says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all and His tender mercies are over all of His works. That's us, we're His works. His tender mercies are over every single one of us. So what is mercy? Before we dive into what is mercy, what is mercy full? Because we're talking about blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. And it's simply this, to be merciful is to be full of mercy. You can write that down if you like. It's revelatory, I know. <laughs> to be full of mercy. 
So in the English dictionary, the word mercy is compassion or forbearance shown especially to an offender or to someone subject to one's power. Showing compassion to someone who has wronged you. At its core, mercy is forgiveness. Creflo Dollar says, Mercy is love that responds to human need in an unexpected, unmerited way. And we often interchange grace and mercy. And whilst they do go hand in hand, they are different. See, grace is the undeserved goodness and favour of God. Mercy is you don't get what you deserve. And I truly believe that as we grasp this true meaning of mercy and come to the revelation daily on how much we need mercy, that it will be the antidote of judgment. And what do I mean by that? The more we realise how in need of mercy we are, the more we realise that God, every single day, I need your mercy. It doesn't leave much space for us to judge others. One of the greatest hindrances in extending mercy is extending judgment in its place. One of the greatest hindrances of extending mercy is extending judgment in its place. For some reason, the church has gotten really good at categorizing sin, right? We have a bit of a ranking system, don't we? Like, well, this is okay if we dabble in this. This is okay, but you do this and oh my goodness, you are a sinner of the worst kind. There is no ranking system for sin. There are no categories. Sin is sin. Let me be clear. There is one sin that is different from all other sin. And so I want to read that to you so that we're all on the same page. It's in Matthew, bless you, (laughs) 12, 31 through 32. And it says, Therefore I say to you, every sin will be forgiven of men. Which sin? Every sin. But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven men. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, Jesus, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him in this age or the age to come. So apart from the sin of speaking against the Holy Spirit, all other sin is in the same category, sin, which leads to death. And we may argue that, oh, I look at this Instagram account of this girl posing in bikinis and booty shorts in a suggestive way. We're like, well, that's not as bad as cheating on my wife. Jesus would say different. We look at someone with hate and malice in our heart, with judgment in our heart towards them. We think, well, at least we're not murderers. Jesus would say different. There is no category of sin. And, Je- and Jesus said in Matthew 5, 27, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have already committed adultery. See, Jesus made it impossible for us to point fingers at anyone. 
at anyone. We tend to judge often whether we admit it, admit it or not. I can't believe she's wearing that. If she was a real Christian, she would be covering up. I cannot believe he said that. If he was a real Christian. We tend to think that others' sins are worse than our own. We judge each other's doctrines. We argue and judge each other's views. We're so quick to pick up the sword of judgment. And I believe that those who are quick to pick up the sword of judgment are those that find themselves without mercy. We are not merciful. We become mercy empty. See, we were sinners, right? We were sinners, saved by grace. Yeah, amen? But according to 2 Corinthians, if you believe in Jesus, if He is your Lord and Saviour, then you are now the righteousness of Christ because He took your sin upon Him so that you could be His righteousness, right? So you are the righteousness of Christ. So you can't identify as a sinner in the present tense. But make no mistake, you still sin. It's just not your identity anymore. In the same way that we're Christians all of the time, we still have the ability to act unchristlike. It doesn't make us any less Christians. Let me ask you this, when was the last time you sinned? Okay, that's a rhetorical question. Don't answer that. (laughs) Let me ask you this. When was the last time you complained? Y'all can be my therapists for a moment. Last time I complained was on Friday morning. I do not understand why people drive and don't use indicators. I just don't. I don't get it. I complained a lot. (laughs) And then I was like, oh Lord, I'm so sorry. (laughs) In Numbers 11.1, it says this, this should be sobering to all of us. And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord and the Lord heard it and His anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed them that were in the utmost parts of the camp. Philippians 2.14, do all things without complaining. (laughs) See, we are all in need of God's mercy. We all fall short of the grace of God. Every single one of us. Lamentations 3, 22 through 23 says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. 
They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. See, God knew that mercy wasn't a once and done deal. He knew that you and I would need mercy every single day. That's why He provides it daily for us. It wasn't just a cherry on top of your salvation and you're done with mercy. No, we live in a perpetual state of the need for mercy. We can only extend mercy to others when we come to the realisation that we are in great need of mercy. It can only flow through us when we know that we need it. When we judge others, we step into self-righteousness. And a self-righteous man or woman is a person who says, I have no need of the gospel. I have no need of a saviour. I have built my perfect life. I'm really good at pretending because who knows, there's no such thing as perfect people. There's no such thing as perfect pastors. There's no such thing as perfect. We are all in need of a saviour. The self-righteous person says, I have no need for mercy. Mercy should always lead to humility. It should always lead to humility. I don't do things now that I did before I knew Jesus because now I know mercy. And mercy, when we truly understand what it is, it changes our behaviour. It moves us into humility and it changes our behaviour It should not be an excuse to sin. It should be an invitation to look more and more like our Heavenly Father. Mercy doesn't say, well, we'll just go on cussing and sound like the rest of the world. (laughs) Because of mercy, we change our behaviour and we look more like Jesus and less like the world. I'm in a confessional kind of mood right now. And I know this is gonna be super hard to believe, but before I knew Jesus, I used to cuss. (laughs) Just a little, okay, a lot. (sighs) But then I knew Jesus. I experienced salvation. I discovered His grace and His mercy in my life and it changed me. See, if you're a believer and you still cuss, it just shows the world, that shows the church, shows the world, shows God how much of the world you still have left in you. Side note, Colossians 3, 8. But now you must also rid yourselves of such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. I don't know what is happening right now, but I hear so many Christians cussing. It's grace. He loves me. It's grace. I can throw out an F-bomb here or there. He knows my heart. Yeah, but do you know His mercy? Do you know how much He's changed you? He hasn't encountered you so that you can look more like the world. He has encountered you so that you can look more like your heavenly Father. 
I want us to turn in our Bibles to 2 Chronicles 33. And we're gonna look at a story in the Bible of when great mercy was extended. In the beginning of this chapter, we're gonna be reading uh, verses 10 through 13. But in the beginning of this chapter, we read about Manasseh becoming king of Judah. He came, became king at 12 years old. Does that bother anyone else? I mean, I know 12 year olds. And I'm like, that scares me to think that they're gonna run a country. I love them, they're beautiful, they're in process, we love you. But no one should be running a country at all. <laughs> so it says that Manasseh did evil in the sight of the Lord. In verse two, it says, he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. He raised up altars for the Baals and made wooden images and he worshipped all the hosts of heaven. That's angel worship. He also built altars in the house of the Lord of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, shall my name be forever. It says that he practiced witchcraft and sorcery and he went to mediums and asked and consulted spirits. And God was angry. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord. We pick it up in 2 Chronicles 33.10. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters and carried him off to Babylon. Now, now, when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord. Another translation says, and when he was in distress, he entreated the Lord. That word entreated means earnestly asked, anxiously asked. He earnestly asked the Lord for the favour of the Lord, his God, and humbled himself greatly before God, the God of his fathers. Why did he humble himself? Because he knew he needed mercy. He prayed to him and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was good. And then goes on to talk about how he restored, how he restored, brought down the high places. He restored the name of God in his city. It talks about how he then was faithful to serve, to worship, to sacrifice to the Lord and turned his nation towards the Lord again. Why? Because of mercy. Because of mercy. He did not deserve to live, let alone have the chance to continue to rule and change his ways. But God who is great in mercy... This is mercy in action. He did not get what he deserved. Mercy should change our characters. Here is what I'm not saying. I think sometimes this is equally important as to what we are saying. 
I'm not saying that there should be no consequence for one's words and actions. There is still the principle of reaping and sowing. But I think it is in human nature that we hold judgment in higher regard than we hold mercy. And oftentimes we find the principles of mercy and justice hard to hold together. Because our view of justice is you made your bed, now lie in it. You reap what you sow. There are consequences for your actions. You deserve what you get. But isn't that the very foundation of our faith? That we don't get what we deserve. God is a God of justice, yes. In Deuteronomy 32, 4, it says, The rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. Psalms 89, 14, Righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. So He is a just God. And He is a merciful God. And there is room for both. Deuteronomy 4.31, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. Daniel 9.9, to the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness. Ephesians 2.4, but God being rich in mercy because of His great love for us. Why is He rich in mercy? Because He loves you. Because He loves you. He loves me. So He extends mercy toward us. But here is the deal. We've actually got to believe that God is a merciful God. Because you know, we ask and we would put our hands up straight away and say, yes, He's merciful. It's the right Christian answer, isn't it? But we, do we truly know, do we truly know that we are being spared from judgment because of His great mercy? Because He chooses to extend mercy. See, religion will have you believe that you're always one step away from the wrath of God. If you put a foot out of line, if you don't pray enough, if you don't read your Bible enough, you are not worthy of His mercy. Wow, I just feel like I'm trying to confess a lot this morning, but here we go again. I used to want to punish those who had done wrong. And I would say, oh, I just have a big justice heart. I hear believers say it over and over again. I just have a heart for justice. I'm like, do you? Or do you have a heart for punishment? Or do you have a heart for judgment? Justice, by the way, biblically looks a lot different than we think justice looks like. But as I've been diving into this topic of mercy, I'm asking myself questions that I haven't asked before. And to be honest, maybe I didn't want the answer to before. And it's simply this, is how much mercy is running through my life? And I wanna implore you to do the same, to sit with God and ask Him these hard questions of how much mercy do I have? Is my life overflowing with the mercy of God extended towards others? Or do I want judgment more than I want mercy? Do we want an eye for an eye 
And let me tell you, allowing mercy to flow through you will cost you something. It will not always be easy. It'll cause you to swallow your pride. You'll have to choose to let go of control. But we get to partner with God. And don't get me wrong, He wants us to partner with Him to see justice in our cities. And we should go after justice. But make no mistake, we are not the ones who inflict judgment. We are not the ones who inflict judgment. When Jesus hung on a cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If anyone had the right to choose condemnation and judgment in that moment, it was Jesus. He had done wrong by big time, falsely accused, persecuted. But instead, as he hung on a cross, he said, forgive them, Father. I wonder how many times people do wrong to us and our first response is, forgive them, Father. Mercy cost Jesus something and it will cost us something too. It is not comfortable. It is not easy. It goes against our, you get what you sow. You get what you deserve. It goes against our very human nature. But it's God trying to make us look more like Him and less like the world. Here's the catch 22 is you can't extend mercy if you don't receive mercy because you can't give away what you don't have. We have to be really good at receiving the mercy of Jesus in order for mercy to flow through us. And here is the great unraveling of religion. Mercy cannot be earned. There is nothing that you can do to earn the mercy of God. Nothing. It is a free gift. And all you can do is open your hands and say, I receive. But make, make no mistake, religion will tell you otherwise. Religion will tell you that there is a cost associated to you receiving mercy. You just gotta be good enough. You just gotta do enough. You just gotta say the right things. Mercy is free. And it cannot be earned. So we need to just quit trying. I am not saying let people take advantage of you. And I am not saying enable people for the sake of mercy. Because oftentimes we enable and call it mercy when it's not. I heard this story once um, of Joyce Meyer. Does everyone know who Joyce Meyer is? I just like her. I'm like, I just wanna be as bold as Joyce Meyer. Um, but she was telling this story and I thought it was just such a great story on what mercy looks like in the practical. And if you don't know much about her story, she grew up in a very dysfunctional home, very dysfunctional. Her father uh, sexually abused her her whole childhood. She went to her mom to ask for help. And even though her mom knew what was happening, she chose to turn a blind eye. 
So she went to her aunt and her uncle asking for help and they too turned a blind eye. So she found herself years and years in this perpetual cycle of being sexually abused by her husband, I mean, by her father, while her mother and her auntie and uncle turned a blind eye to what was happening to her. The very people that were there to protect her were abusing and violating her. She got saved and she, yes, praise God, And she walked through a lot of healing. She walked through a lot of forgiveness. But there came a point when her dad, her mom, and her auntie were all at a stage where they needed care because of their old age. And the Lord said to her, take care of them. They needed assisted living. So for 15 years, she paid out of pocket for her father, her mom, and her auntie to be in assisted care. She took care of them. She went and visited them every other week. She would pray for them. She would run errands for them. She took care of them. The very people who were meant to take care of her as a child, but failed, she then took care of. That is mercy. That is mercy. Because they did not deserve what they got. That is mercy. Matthew 9.13 says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's the words of Jesus right there. Go and learn what this means. When He gives us a command like this, go and learn what that means. And we better go and learn what that means. And Jesus was quoting from Hosea 6.6, where it says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. See, God's people in the time of Hosea were good at bringing offerings, but they had forsaken mercy. God would rather have right hearts full of truth and mercy than sacrifice. Mercy is not turning a blind eye to sin. It is turning sinners to repentance. He loves those whom He chastises. We know that mercy does not give us a free pass, but it draws us closer to God and makes us look more like Jesus. One of my favourite books, I will, I will preface it by saying this, I'm not fully in agreement with the theology. It's a love story. <laughs> um, it's not a book on theology. It's called A Severe Mercy. And a friend of mine gave it to me and I've, I've read it probably three or four times now, but I love this book. And it's a story of a man and a woman and it's their love story together. And it's them discovering Jesus together and establishing their faith. And it's this beautiful story. And Sheldon Van Orken is the author. And he was kind of going in and out of his faith, being kind of tossed to and fro. Some seasons he was on fire for God, other seasons not so much, but his wife was faithful and she never stopped loving Jesus. And in this story, I'm gonna ruin it for you all, <laughs> sorry. She dies from, from a disease, she dies and he has to go through the trauma of looking after for her as she is passing away. And he is friends with C.S. Lewis. And so there's 18 original letters from C.S. Lewis back and forth to Sheldon Van Orken. 
And he's saying, I don't get it. I don't understand why God would do this. Now, I don't believe that God does that. That's where our theology differs. (laughs) I don't believe that God brings sickness. I don't believe God can give what He doesn't have. And the last time I read, there is no sickness and disease in heaven. Amen. But he says this, and C.S. Lewis writes back this beautiful letter. And he says something to the effect of, perhaps it was a severe mercy because she knew where she was going. And if he had have taken you instead, it would have been a question mark where you ended up. But those words just grabbed me, a severe mercy. Because sometimes we look at the works and the ways of God and we don't understand. But mercy can be gentle and sweet. And mercy can also be severe and painful. But it is all mercy. Because it is more interested in where you get to go than where you are. It is the forgiveness of Jesus, the salvation of Jesus. I want to end with this before we pray. But in the midst of the holies of holies, God could have chosen to put a judgment seat. He could have chosen to put a seat of penance. He could have chosen anything. But He chose to put the mercy seat. In the very centre of who He is, at the very core of His presence, He chose to place the mercy seat. Why? Because that's where He meets every single one of us. That is where He meets us, at the seat of mercy, not at the seat of judgment, at the seat of mercy. It is because of His mercy that we find restoration, relationship and salvation through Jesus. It is all because of mercy. There is no grace without mercy. The grace that we live in, it doesn't exist without mercy. And quite simply, if I do not extend mercy, then mercy will not be extended to me. And I need mercy in my life. I need mercy to have a relationship with Jesus. If I claim to follow Christ, I need to abound in mercy. Blessed are the mercy-filled, for they shall obtain mercy. Why don't you stand with me? We're going to pray. Charles Spurgeon says this, Prayer is the forerunner of mercy. Turn to sacred history and you will find that scarcely ever did a great mercy come to this world unheralded by supplication. So if you want mercy to flow through your life, it starts with prayer. Ask God to fill you with mercy until it's overflowing. And I don't care where we're at in our walk with Jesus. We all need mercy So we need to extend mercy. None of us would be where we are if it weren't for the mercy of God. And so it is not our job to take mercy, twist it and cast out judgment. 
It is our job to allow mercy to flow through us uninhibited by our human nature and extend it to the people around us. Amen. Let's pray. God, we ask that You would remind us daily of our need for Your great and tender mercies. We thank You that Your mercies are new every morning. And we ask that as we find forgiveness and compassion because of Your mercy, that we will turn it out and extend mercy to those around us that we would not keep records of wrong and that we would look more and more like our merciful Father. Lord, make us mercy filled so that mercy will flow through us. In Jesus' Name, Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit BethelATX.com.